Thursday on the Derek Hunter Show, Joe Biden is over in Europe embarrassing himself and the United States while the world looks elsewhere for leadership. We'll talk about the dangers of that from 9 until noon on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Lots of stuff going on. There's a ton of things to talk about. The President of the United States is over in Ireland making a complete fool of himself again. I don't know what he's planted a tree with the President of the Republic of Ireland. What Hunter is there was this it doesn't translate to radio, but there is a scene where he's done talking. He won't take any questions from reporters, which is bizarre. They announced it ahead of time that he wouldn't be taking any questions from reporters. There wouldn't be any press conferences at all. Normally, when two world leaders get together, there's a press conference because why? Because most world leaders aren't senile piles of excrement who are incapable of thinking on the fly and uh, are in need of protection by their staff. Well, in the United States of America, our president is just that. So you sit there and you go, we're not going to do any questions. We're not gonna... I bet you that the Irish prime minister or president was probably hoping to get a little bit of a, a little bit of shine. There's a little bit of sunlight on him from being involved in a press conference with the president of the United States. And they shut that down. No, can't do it. Can't do it. And you can see why. Because he's sitting there at the end of his remarks. Not really a talk. His remarks where he made a complete ass out of himself by confusing a apparently a brutal regiment of the British military with a New Zealand rugby team. I'll play that audio in a second. But at the end of it, he's kind of standing there in that weird, like, does nobody brief the president of the United States that when you're done with the remarks, this is where you go. This is what you do. Look for Joey. Joey will be, we'll put a nice big purple tie that is painful to look at. It's so bright on Joey. Look, either, whichever direction you see the obnoxious dude with the purple tie, go in that direction, okay? There's ways to signal people so they know what to do when they're done. Instead, they just leave him kind of dangling out there on stage to go, what do I, where do I go? And look like a doddering old fool. So he's standing there looking like a doddering old fool, confused with no idea which way to go. And he picks up the microphone. He's got a handheld microphone and a, a regular podium mic. I don't know why the, the president insists on having a handheld microphone and a podium mic. But he picks up the handheld microphone and tries to say something into it, but the White House know what they're dealing with, the White House communications team. And the second he's done with the prepared remarks, they shut the microphones off. <laughs> so he picks up the microphone, and this is the President of the United States. Even if if he picks up a microphone, you work for the President of the United States, you, you would probably turn it back on. You'd probably bring it the volume back up. Joe Biden talks into it, and it's it's nothing. It's just dead air. They're like, you're not, we're not going to let you talk anymore, dude. You barely made it through what you've already said. We're not going to let you talk anymore. Shut your mouth and get off the stage. Only he doesn't know which way to go off the stage. And standing in front of him is his crack-addicted, prostitute-loving son, Hunter, who then tells him which way to go. 
And I'm telling you, if you have to rely on your crackhead son for stage direction to not make a bigger ass out of yourself on the international stage, we're more screwed than anybody could possibly imagine. It is one of those situations where you just go, this couldn't get any worse. This couldn't get any worse. Now, what did Joe Biden do over there? Well, we have audio here. Now, as an American, unless you've seen the movie Invictus, you probably won't know, or you're just weird, and you go, you know what? I really like staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning watching rugby, because rugby is a very popular sport everywhere except for in this hemisphere. Actually, the yeah... I'd say the Western Hemisphere and the, the Northern Hemisphere. So just the United States. I don't know if it's popular in Mexico. I doubt it. But Canada ain't playing rugby. And the, the U.S., while I'm sure people play rugby, it is not the same as it is all. I follow a lot of Australian news. We have some weird Australian news coming up. Uh, and it, it, Rugby is wildly popular over there. It's not as popular in the UK and Northern Europe as it is in uh, in the Pacific Rim area in Australia and New Zealand and whatnot. But it's still popular. It's not as popular as soccer, for example, but it's still pretty popular. They have professional leagues. I, I'll tell you the truth. I don't really know the difference between Australian rules football, rugby, and Irish rules football. And I'm sure there are other footballs around there where you just, I don't get what's going on. I, I watch it. It's hypnotic. It's kind of like growing up across the river from Canada and Detroit and you get the CBC and you go, ooh, Saturday afternoon curling is on. And you waste a Saturday, you waste like three hours on Saturday watching curling and you come away going, I can't stop watching this stuff, but I have no idea what's going on. I watched, I have watched Australian rules football or rugby, I don't know which one. I think it's Australian rules football. And it's with fascination because if, you, uh, if you've ever seen it, the referees or the judge, I don't know what the hell they're called. <laughs> it's weird. I, I'm fascinated by it, but I don't pay enough attention to do it to pick up on anything. But the ones where you got the, the four that are kind of like upright, the four upright things in the uh, end zone-ish area, where if you kick it through the middle one, it's three points, I think, and you kick it through one of the two outside ones, it's one point. I, I don't care about that. I'm not sure if that's the scoring thing or what. But um, I know that when you do it, there's a dude in like a white fedora and a white jacket. Like he's going to Puff Daddy's white party in the Hamptons. All dressed in white who uh, if you do it through one of the ones on the outside, the right side or the left side, he'll point violently with that arm. Now, it's the right side, so it's the right arm. He points violently. That means one point or the left side. He points violently with the left arm. And and if you get it through the middle one, he points violently with, with both arms. It's the most bizarre, fascinating thing. It's like part of the job is you can't express not an emotion, but any sort of, you're like a robot. Let's just try to do a robot move. I've watched it for a very long time. I still don't know what the hell is going on. Anyway, the uh, in addition to being lost on stage, the president of the United States, we'll play this clip for you now. The president of the United States, like I said, confused 
um, the British, uh, part of the British military with the New Zealand rugby team. Now, apparently the All Blacks, uh, they all wear all black and they are a powerhouse in rugby. So beating them is a big deal and uh, doesn't happen very often, etc., etc. He's talking to a former Irish rugby player from the stage in a bit of an ad lib and he confuses it all. The audience kind of plays along. But uh, it's a bit of a different thing saying one of the greatest moments in Irish sports. I remember that. And instead you're talking about the uh, British troops that you view as essentially being terrorists killing your countrymen. It's a bit of a bit of a difference. Right here was a hell of a rugby player. And they beat the hell of a black and tans. Oh, God. But... But it was when you were at a, a soldier field, wasn't it? Game? Chicago. Chicago. And uh, all over, uh, uh, he uh, gave my brother, allegedly for me, but if it wasn't, I still took it. I still got the tie. I wore it with great pride. Well, he beat the, the black and tans, the black and tans. The White House had to, again, clarify. UK Daily Mail, the White House has been forced to correct Joe Biden to quell a fresh row after he jibed about the black and tans during a visit to a pub in Ireland. The U.S. president risked a backlash over his anti-British stance with remarks to a packed bar in Dublin County last night. Mr. Biden said he was wearing a shamrock tie given to him by rugby player Rob Kearney, a distant relative, saying approvingly that he, quote, beat the hell out of the black and tans. The Black and Tans were an auxiliary police force sent to Ireland in the 1920s to counter IRA extremism, pilloried in Republican folk songs, meaning Republic of Ireland, pilloried in Republican folk songs for their brutality. The group was notably singled out in the pro-IRA song Come Out, Ye Black and Tans, still popular with Irish rebel bands. However, the White House website attempted to soothe over the situation by clarifying its official record to refer to the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team. (laughs) The comment drew laughter in the pubs as Mr. Biden's reputation as a gaffe machine Leaving the room for uh, leaving room for doubt whether he it was intentional or merely a slip. He also said that he hated the fact that his father passed on an English surname, although he insisted he was quote joking because he lies. He's just lying, joking, lying, lying. But he screw. How do you screw this up? Who thinks of the black and tans? Who thinks? Why would Joe Biden have been, well, you know what, we're going to Ireland, so we're going to brief you on things, we're going to celebrate 25 years of peace. So in your briefing materials, we're going to throw in a whole bunch of stuff about uh, a, a brutal regiment that was sent over there to beat the hell out of the Irish in the 1920s? Why would that be in his head? How would that get in his head? It just, it wouldn't, except when you realize, and this is where it comes to a head, this is where Joe Biden is, when you realize that people who are suffering from dementia, people who are losing, they don't remember yesterday. They have difficulty remembering last year or 10 years ago, but they maintain things from a long time ago. Things from a long time. Now, it's probable 
that Joe Biden, as a boy or even a younger member of uh, the United States Senate, had learned about this and the Ireland black and tan stuck in his head because he's not a drinker. Joe Biden, as stupid as he is, he didn't kill his brain cells with alcohol. Uh, so this is this is Joe Biden. This is an argument for drinking, I think. But he uh, so he's not talking about you know ordering a black and tan drink, and he's just confused. He, I believe, is remembering things that probably were told to him 40, 50 years ago. And he's that part of the brain, those synopses are still probably firing somewhat. I mean, they never were great. He was always stupid, but are still firing much better than the things that his staff just told him. It's probably, you know, it explains a lot about Joe Biden, if you really think about it. Like when he was looking for that uh, dead member of Congress at the event because she was instrumental in passing a piece of, of legislation and that he was celebrating months later. And where is she? Where I thought she'd be here. Well, he was likely briefed that this is, a, I can't remember her name, but this is so-and-so congressman, so-and-so. She, uh, she was instrumental. She's passed on. But uh, you might want to just give her a nice shout out because, you know, she's a Republican, but she's a dead Republican. She can't do any harm anymore. So you can be nice to dead Republicans and then you can claim to be bipartisan. And instead, he just remembered that she had something to do with this bill. And why isn't she here? It's so bizarre. One would think she would be in the room celebrating the signing of this piece of legislation. This is our president, ladies and gentlemen. Are you, you terrified yet? Okay. Now, we move from Joe Biden. Well, we're not going to really move off of Joe Biden. We're going to talk about the Biden administration and how they... If you uh, if you own a car, you damn well better make sure that you have... You, you change that oil. That reminds me, I have to change the oil in my car. But you have better make sure you take care of it if you like gasoline-powered cars, because you're not going to be able to get them very soon, thanks to the Biden administration. And if you notice, the Biden administration is not interested in passing legislation. They're not interested in getting things done, not even in a bipartisan way, ramming them through, whatever. They are a regulatory regime, which is problematic for people if you're intellectually honest of course our democratic friends are not intellectually honest but if they're intellectually honest they go uh we have a problem with the authoritative administrative state right the executive does not get to make decrees from on high and have those be enacted with the power of law the executive branch is supposed to enforce the laws passed by the legislative branch and agreed to by the executive and previous executive branches, you see. That's how our government works. If we had a system where a chief executive could simply just decree things to be and everybody goes, oh, well, there, there you go. What are you going to do? Then we would have no need for Congress. We'd also have no need for a judicial branch. We would be a lot like large swaths of the rest of the world where they have governments, they have legislative bodies that really just focus as a rubber stamp. Remember that? The the, the legislature in Beijing, 
I forget, I forget what they call it. Doesn't matter. The Politburo back in the old Soviet Union, and probably still called the Politburo in Russia. They're not there passing legislation, and then the president Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin sit down, lick their pen, and go, "I'm going to veto this." I don't really think. And then they override the veto, or they they uh, are passing things that the president has said we don't want this, and they go, "Well, we dare you to veto." No, if you cross the leader over there, you get killed. There's a good chance you'll get killed, disappeared more often, maybe not shot down in the streets. You just won't be there one day. So there are rubber stamps. It's, ever, it's understood by everybody in government that if you you get to live well, you get to live well in those sorts of governments if you're a member of that government. But you also live, and you live better than the people you rule over, and you do rule over the people. But you also live with a, I don't know, 25% chance that one day the leader will decide that you got a little uppity in your talk, or you, um, you didn't vote with enough enthusiasm or maybe you were talking to somebody and had a weird look on your face or whatever it is, whatever it is, you run a fairly decent risk of being killed at some point because you have crossed dear leader or they just need a good purge to keep everybody in line and they just draw names from a hat and your name was one of the ones that that came from the hat sorry about that it is not usually something you did or certainly not always something you did but you end up getting killed so you you get to live well but you don't really get to uh, live peacefully, shall we say. It's hard to feel bad for these people. They know that deal going in, whatever. But with that in mind, <clears throat> we aren't that type of government, or we aren't supposed to be. We have checks and balances. We have co-equal branches of government. We've already seen an assault by the left on the judicial branch. Well, <laughs> methoprexone, it's an outrage that anybody, they have no authority to impose this nationwide ban on this this pill just because its approval process was rammed through, it circumvented the regular order, it did so illegally. You can't do that. Now, they, they do those sorts of things all the time. Courts do. And often at the urging of leftists, please make sure that nobody can use X, Y, or Z because it is outrageous. This was passed improperly. This was whatevered improperly. The Remember, the first quote-unquote Muslim ban had to be redone, had to be withdrawn and rewritten. Why? Because the judge came in and said this is too broad, it didn't go through the proper channels, blah, 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 and imposed a nationwide injunction about 20 minutes after the thing was signed into law because the leftists immediately ran to court saying, please protect us, please protect us from what we live to do when we're in power. And they did. There was no outrage over the overreach there because some judge in Portland dared impose a nationwide ban on something done by the president. It's only when it's done to Democrats. Well, along those lines of decrees as laws, and realistically, even if we're going to go down this totalitarian one powerful chief executive, which is expressly what our founding fathers tried to protect us from and did protect us from for a very long time, <clears throat> we can save a lot of money by getting rid of the legislative branch. 
and the judicial branch, which that costs a lot of money to operate those things. So we could get rid of all of them if we wanted to, but I don't think we want to. We come to this, back to the automobile. The editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. auto industry is nominally still a privately owned, but it is slowly becoming a de facto state-directed utility. That's the meaning of the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed new vehicle emissions standards Wednesday that will force feed the production of electric vehicles whether or not consumers want them. The average price of an electric vehicle is now up significantly, just like the prices for everything are up significantly under the Biden administration. It's like $61,000 <clears throat> the average price for an electric vehicle. Yeah, you can get a really crummy, tiny wind-up toy one. You see them running down the street where you're like, is that when you do you not park that? You just stick that in your pocket, right? You look at it and you go, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be caught dead in one of those things because in a minor fender bender, you'll be dead. There's nothing to these vehicles. Well, that's what you're going to be forced to buy if in a couple of years you haven't bought or don't maintain properly your gas-powered vehicle. And I promise you, if Democrats remain in power, you could say, well, I'll still do this and I'll have my car and I make sure I've run a car for 30 years. I've had a car so I can make sure that my next car left. They won't make you sell your car. They'll just make it impossible for you to fix your car. They'll make it difficult, if not impossible, to fuel up your car. We're building charging stations. Eventually, they will environmentally regulate out of existence gas stations. Mark my words. I promise you they will do this because they don't care. I can't afford it. It doesn't matter. Go to any major, go to downtown Baltimore, go to downtown Washington, D.C. Those are the closest cities to where I am. Where, go to whatever major city you have nearby you. With the ex well, there really isn't an exception because it's the same thing I was going to say in Detroit, where the car is king. It's it's even there. Go downtown and look at the roads. What do you see? You see what used to be lanes for cars that would alleviate traffic. Now traffic is being forced to merge. It'll take you longer to get through downtown because there'll be a bus lane. You can only ride in that lane. With that. What's the point? A bus comes by every 10 minutes, but the whole lane is dedicated to just that bus or else you get a massive fine. Because why? Because they go, well, if we make the buses be able to move through the downtown area at a, a quicker rate, then people will be more likely to ride the bus. More people are not more likely to ride the bus. People don't want to ride the buses. It's not the inconvenience of a bus that keeps people from riding the buses, although that's certainly part of it. It's a small part of it. It's the junkies. It's the uh, being accosted by weirdos. It's the smell of the homeless people who sit on there and ride the, well, for a buck and a half or whatever it costs to get on a bus. Now you can ride the bus all day and when it's cold out and you can get, uh, you can get warm. Or if it's hot out, you can get on the bus and you can ride in the air conditioning. Or you just get on there and you're high as a kite and you pass out and you soil yourself. Now, who wants to ride that? It doesn't matter how convenient. Well, you can get to work in 10, less, in 10 minutes less than it takes you to drive there. And you don't have to 
pay for parking and you don't have to worry about traffic and you get to save gas and it's good for the environment. Oh, yay, yay, yay. Let's see. Now that on paper sounds really good. People would make that choice on paper. Or a lot of people would, certainly more people than do. But in reality, you go, but there's a, you know, 60% chance somebody's going to start a fight with somebody else on the bus. There's a 5% chance of a stabbing. There's a 18% chance of a junkie screaming at the bus driver. There's all sorts of problems. And then there's going to be a smell. And there's going to be a this and a that and the other thing. And you go, well, you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather pay 20 bucks a day in parking then deal with any of that, even potentially. And you deal with that because the powers that be in these progressive cities look at those things not as crimes anymore. Those are lifestyle things. They're victimless crimes. Nobody, Nobody's really bothered. Nobody's harmed by a junkie passing out from heroin on a bus and uh, urinating all over the floor and themselves. Uh, people actually are. It's gross. It's gross. People, you know, you're not beaten up or anything like that but it it's gross you don't want to be around it that is a harm being forced to be around something gross is a harm people like convenience people like not being accosted women on buses what do we hear women can't ride public uh, transportation without being sexually harassed in their campaigns hey stop harassing attractive women blah 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 and you go well then why the hell if this is a problem why the hell would women ride the bus why wouldn't you arrest people who do these things? Well, we will arrest them if you catch them doing it. They'll be out in 10 minutes because we have cashless bail on this, and the prosecutor will not prosecute them, so there's no disincentive to keep them from doing it again. It's not like somebody goes, well, you've passed out on the bus 15 different times and urinated on it 15 different times, so now you're going to go to county. That's not the way it works. No consequences means no consequences. The people in charge of these cities believe that everything has been over-criminalized. We have a mass incarceration problem. No, we have a problem with too many people breaking the law. And you get more people breaking the law if you don't punish people who break the law for breaking the law. See how that works? So you're going to force people on buses. You're going to go downtown. You're going to see the bus lane. And you'll see a bus go by every once in a while. And you will see a whole bunch of traffic being slowed down because what once was three or four lanes is now two or three lanes. See, but the, the urban planners, the city planners that built the city, that made the roads, planned on dealing with traffic with four lanes, and now you've only got three. Okay, but you don't really have three because another lane has been taken up by another pet cause of the left. Here's a bike lane. Oh, look, it's a bike lane. You could play golf in a bike lane. Who rides? We want people to be healthy. And we want people to ride their bikes to work. Well, wait a second. You want people to be healthy. You want them to get exercise. But if somebody says, hey, that Lizzo is a little bit bigger than I think is uh, probably good for her future prospects of not being a diabetic. What happens? Well, outrage. How dare anybody say anything? There's a story today. Lizzo has the perfect response to uh, resurfaced nudes. On it. Somebody posted on it. Nobody, I didn't look. I didn't click the link. Once I heard Lizzo and nudes, I was out. But even blurred. But if you said, hey, you know, Lizzo, 
a salad might work. Or maybe, you know, you're a very talented musician, but you got to probably, I don't know, take some some time to burn some calories or something. And I'm saying this is somebody going through the process myself. I'm never, never near Lizzo, but you get the point. Everybody's got some work to do. But now we have society saying, you're fat shaming. You're fat shaming. You're not allowed to, fa- how dare you fat shame sweet, sweet, nourishing Lizzo. And you're shouted down. And actually, I, there was a story today I retweeted from the Daily Mail. Apparently, Ariana Grande is catching hell from people on social media. And it's it's now they just call it body shaming. But they're saying that she's too fit. How the hell are you too fit? What the hell is wrong with society where the headlines are, Lizzo is beautiful at any size, and there's like four people caught in orbit around her. It can't, get, it can't break free. One kid this morning burned up in her atmosphere upon reentry. But Ariana Grande is like, well, Ariana Grande, we need to talk about how uh, how in shape Ariana Grande is. Maybe she doesn't have enough uh, of a body fat uh, on her. Like, uh, well, she she's young, she's skinny, and she dances for ninety minutes during her shows. That's going to burn some calories. One is actually healthy; the other is not healthy. Okay, well, you can be healthy at any size. Sure, technically, but look at the long-term prospects. Visit any nursing home. Visit any, go to the villages, and you'll see a lot of people riding around on golf carts. You won't see that many people riding around on scooters, right? At a certain point in age, the cutoff somewhere around 70, the people who are incapable of moving around anymore because they are so large tend to die off. So maybe you you want to get up and burn some calories. But you also, the government sends mixed messages because the government is saying, you know, no, it's, it's healthy. You're healthy to do whatever you want. Leave people alone. Don't fat shame. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then they put bike lanes everywhere. It's like, gee, I hope people ride their bikes to work. What do you see? Who do you see riding their bikes to work? Two, three people a day, maybe? In the whole area, not just at your work, but in the whole downtown area. Why? Because in the summer, if you work in a professional environment, like if I was roofing and I was like a mile or two from from home to where I got picked up by the steak truck, I'd probably ride a bike. But if I am a mile or two or five miles or whatever, and probably longer, because the people who work downtown tend to live in the suburbs, and I had a, a ride through war zones. Granted, if you're going to work in the morning, there's not many people going to be awake. Not a lot of, I imagine, not a lot of heroin sales happen between 7 a.m. And, and noon. The ride home would be a little bit dicey. But would you ride a long distance to get home? No, you wouldn't ride a long distance to get to work. Why? Because if you have to dress professionally, you would need to take a shower when you got to work. Is your office going to provide you with showers? Is the government going to provide you with showers? No. And who wants to go if they did? Like, well, there's a shower in the basement. So who wants to go to work early enough, ride their bike early enough? It's already going to add commute time to get there to give themselves a shower when they get there. Nobody. People go out and roll in right when it's perfect time to roll into work is about two minutes before work starts. Not, oh, I'll get there an hour early. I'll get up at 6 o'clock instead of 7.30 
to ride my bike in to take advantage of the bike lanes. And then you still got to worry about getting hit by a car because nobody pays attention and the bike lanes are wildly stupid and nobody on bikes obeys the street laws. But you've got now two lanes of the four lanes on these roads taken up by things that uh, are as rare as unicorns and nobody wants them. And it's all because of Democrats trying to force you into it. They can't mandate you to get rid of your car. But they can make it so you can't afford a car. And you get the same result. And that's what's happening here with these regulations from the EPA. If you can afford an electric vehicle, great. If you can't, they'll subsidize one for you a little bit. It won't be enough. The average American household's income is somewhere around $52,000 or whatever. And the average price of an electric vehicle is more than that. So it's only both are only going to go up. Which one do you think will go up faster? And we're also dependent on China for all the elements to build those electric cars. But again, the Biden administration doesn't give a damn. They're plowing ahead. And of course, Joe will be long since dead. And I'm not breaking news here. It'll be 10 Joe will more than likely not make it to 100 years old. He'll be gone. His administration will be over. By the time these regulations really start screwing over people, it'll be a whole new administration. Be mad at somebody else. And Joe will have gotten away with it. You're getting screwed over by your government. Maybe you're not even aware of it, but that's what's happening. So you got the Biden administration telling you, ride your bike, ride the bus, do this. Democrats telling you, ride the bike, ride the bus, do this, that, and the other thing. Shut up, quit complaining, surf, you don't know where it is. And then you got this story from, well, this editorial from the Wall Street Journal about the latest moves from the Biden administration. The EPA is using its authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate tailpipe pollutants. You see, this is, this is the problem. With, and I get that um, the, the Democrats, and it's fraught. You have to be very smart about communication, which is a problem for Republicans. But you could message around this. But Republicans, uh, with the Rick Scott idea of every five years, government programs come up for renewal votes. Is this still what we need? Do we still need this thing? And it, they sort of have to justify their continued existence, which is a smart move. It's just a little bit pathetic, uh, a little bit uh, difficult politically. Because then you're accused of what? You're accused of trying to, you want to get rid of Social Security. It's not what it is. Nobody would vote against renewing Social Security every five years. But taking a look, making these programs sort of justify their existence because they're, you know, what, 500 different programs to administer food stamps? Do we really need all of them? Isn't like, I don't know, the food stamp program? Shouldn't that be able to handle it? Do we need that many different departments and that many employees. That's really what Rick Scott was talking about. But they, uh, the media and the Democrats, but I repeat myself, ignore that sort of thing. Well, the EPA is one of those things. Nobody wants mercury dumped into the drinking water. Nobody wants asbestos released into the air or anything like that. But they... Uh, look at this situation 
and they take advantage of that. Because you can't say, well, the EPA is overstretched. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. They care about the environment. It's right there in their name. Even if they don't, even if what they do isn't particularly good for the environment, even if they look at the water in Flint and go, yeah, aces, and then boom, they've approved uh, the thing, and then it's lead poisoning. Remember that lake or the river out in Colorado that they, they polluted? Whatever, it turned it a weird color and killed all the life in it. Like That was the Environmental Protection Agency. These are faceless, nameless bureaucrats who really are unimpacted by the decisions that they render from Washington, D.C. It's part of the reason why there's a push to move government agencies outside of Washington, D.C. and locate them around the country so that maybe they'd have to rub elbows with people uh, that they rule over. The Trump administration started to implement that. The Biden administration, I believe, stopped it because it makes it difficult to fundraise off these people. If they're if you know, if the EPA is located in Colorado, you're not gonna have easy access to you'll still get the money, but you're not gonna get as much maybe if you've gotta get somebody to fly to, from Colorado to come in and bribe you. It's wire transfers are messy and there's digital records and things like that. But the problem is the EPA is under the Clean Air Act. Again, it's the Orwellian name, Clean Air Act. What are you, against clean air? No, of course I'm not against clean air. But I promise you that when the Clean Air Act was passed, it had nothing to do with climate change. And it had nothing to do with one day making the gas-powered car impossible to buy had nothing to do with it, but it's mission creep. And the problem is that government, Republicans and Democrats, they do so for different reasons, write laws in such a way that they leave a lot of power, they give a lot of power to the administrative state. They want this the government. The EPA is charged with protecting the quality of air under the Clean Air Act in a manner to be determined by the secretary. And you're like, huh? Well, there you go. That sounds great. We've created the uh, Clean Air Act inside the Environmental Protection Agency. Two Orwellian named things. It's like, my God, who's against clean air? Who is against environmental protection? And the secretary will act in a way that it makes sure that blah 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 blah. And then it says. That secretary says, well, I determine that you can't have cars anymore. That's the only way to make sure that the air is clean. So getting rid of cars. Nobody voted on that. Nobody voted on that. Nobody ran on that. Nobody campaigned on that. Yet here we are. This is where we are. But uh, make no mistake, the Wall Street Journal continues, this isn't about clean air. This is about forcing automakers to produce more EVs, electric vehicles, that consumers will have no choice but to buy since there will be few gas-powered vehicles left. The EPA lacks legal authority to mandate electric vehicles, but it will do so directly by setting CO2 emission standards for 2027 through 2032 The standards are so strict that automakers must electrify their fleets to meet them. Under proposed rules, EVs would account for about two-thirds of light-duty vehicle sales in 2032, up from a mere 6% or so 
last year. So there you go. It's going up to two-thirds, 67-ish percent in order to meet these guidelines. There are no, there's no vote. There's no say. The people who scream wildly at the top of their lungs, this is what democracy looks like, cheer this, which is decidedly not what democracy looks like. But this is how the government works. Look, we're not forcing, we're not banning the sale of these cars at all. We're just saying that two-thirds of the cars that you do sell have to meet these impossible standards that can only be met by electric vehicles. Now, it's weird that if you point this out to an environmentalist wacko, they uh, they won't have much of an answer or they'll just regurgitate lies. But if you say the overall pollution, quote unquote, of a vehicle is now taken into account rather because when you deal with these regulations and what Democrats want, it's all about the end. It's about the tailpipe in a car that you own. So then it's about the CO2 emissions or lack thereof from an electric vehicle that you own. But if you look at the entirety of the vehicle, there's there's obviously CO2 emissions from a tailpipe from a gas-powered car. Then there are none from an electric vehicle. But if you go for the entire lifespan of those vehicles, you begin to see something very interesting. From an environmental and pollution standpoint, and even from a quote-unquote green, uh, what is that, the greenhouse gas emissions standpoint, the gas vehicle wins. The gas vehicle wins. Today's cars emit very little as far as pollutants out the tailpipe. They really do. Now, there's a lot of them, so Democrats say that they're a danger, they're a threat. But individually, they, they don't. You can do the old thing from the 80s. Now, don't take me up on this because you can still die, but you, you get a car from the 70s in your garage and you turn it on and you're working on your car, you, you could die of asphyxiation pretty quickly if you're not paying attention, if you don't have a clearly ventilated thing. Now, with modern cars, it, it's not good. But it wouldn't be nearly as quick because there's less things coming out. It's filtered. They're tuned differently. There's additives and gas to make it less this, that, and the other thing. It's just different. But if you look at the entirety of the lifespan of an electric vehicle, and I'm talking the entire lifespan of it from the point that you mine the rubber tree to for the tires and get the steel for the body or the fiberglass, whatever the hell the thing is made out of, to the end, the manufacturer... From the moment you start those digging for those rare earth materials of these lithium batteries, of these batteries and whatever else they're making, all the chemicals and all the poisons that they put in batteries and all of the energy that has to be expended to get those things. In addition, you can put aside because Democrats clearly don't, they know that this stuff is being mined with slave labor and child labor. You can find the stories and the footage of cobalt mines in China all over the place and, and mines in Africa, people being buried alive in these mines because it's so unsafe, but it doesn't matter. Just get the stuff out of the dirt. And there, by the way, there isn't enough of that stuff coming out of the dirt to meet this artificial demand that the government is mandating. 
So you're, you're going to get screwed either way. There just isn't going to be enough. Or they're going to have to really quadruple down on the slave labor and the exploitation of workers here to, uh, to, have, to have what they want. And you sit there and you go, that doesn't make a whole lot of environmental sense. You build this battery, and the building of the battery releases all sorts of byproducts in the environment that are bad for the environment. Then you drive the car. You have to generate the electricity, which you can't really do uh, with wind and solar, so you need coal. You're going to need more coal-fired plants because you won't allow nuclear. And even if you did go wind and solar, the components that are required to build those are also, and make those work, are also wildly polluting. They need to be replaced regularly. They break down oily, uh, regularly, and they also use oil in uh, their manufacture and operation. They also are largely made by China because they we can't build them here because of regulations, environmental regulations, which should be an indicator. If you can't make it here because of the environmental regulations, that maybe if you're trying to clean up the environment, you're not really doing it. Right? You're not really doing it if you're doing it in a way that with something that you can't do here because it's not going to be clean enough for the environment. That is all before you get to what? Before you get to the disposal of these things. Because while you sit there and you think, oh, I bought a new Chevy Volt. I'm set. I'm ready for the green revolution. Well, your battery is going to die. Your battery is going to die, putting aside any accidents in these cars that will happen. The battery is going to die and need to be replaced. That's going to cost $20,000 again. Your shell might be fine. You just get a new battery in there. Or you could pay $65,000 for a new electric vehicle, neither of which is a particularly attractive option, I'd imagine. Then what do you do with the old battery? Well, that thing is just poison. We don't have a good way to get rid of the old battery. Does it know? You ever wonder why you walk into like a Best Buy and the, right in there in between the two sets of doors they have a recycle your old things and put anything with a lithium-ion battery in here. We'll take your old cell phones. Not because they go, ooh, we can really take that BlackBerry from, 19, uh, from 2005 and with just a couple of tweaks, we can have that thing back out the door. It's not like a Coke bottle where you can rinse it out or melt it down and use it again. They know that if you throw your battery-powered things into the garbage can, that stuff is going to end up in a landfill, and eventually it will break down, and the horribleness that is contained therein will seep into the groundwater. There's also a problem with lithium-ion batteries that I don't know if you've ever seen them, and I don't know if you remember this. Back when I quit smoking back in... uh, I don't know, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. I started vaping. And it was a, the first, I don't vape anymore. I haven't vaped for a long time either, but it's a good stepping stone if you want to quit smoking, if you can find something you like the taste of. But the first vape I had was, it was a, a guy I worked with. I worked at the AM station. He worked at the FM station, a guy named Mickey. He had this great, he showed me it, and I was like, well, this is pretty good. So I went out and I bought it. It was like 50 bucks. It was rechargeable. The battery lasted a long time. Lithium-ion battery. 
But as with anything, like you drop your phone, you drop your this, you drop your vape. Lithium-ion batteries are sealed. They're contained. And they have things in them that if they crack, if they become exposed to oxygen, immediately start on fire. There was that controversy, and it happened to Mickey, where the battery just sort of spontaneously somehow jarred, whatever, it burst open and it burst into flames. And it is a white hot, just this side of welding flame. It messed up Mickey's leg. It was in his pocket, I think, at the time. And there were all sorts of stories about how people were being burned by their vapes. The vape that I had, it was recalled. I I think I just threw mine away. But they were recalling them because they were... uh, there was a flaw with the battery or whatever. Eventually they came with replaceable, not replaceable, but removable batteries and all of that. But these batteries are dangerous. They are dangerous. So you add, imagine a car accident where, yeah, there's always a risk of a car catching on fire, but a car catching on fire where it gets up to like 1,500 degrees and it burns uncontrollably, and you can't extinguish these things with water, and you're trapped in a car. Nobody wants to think about that, and it's not going to happen all the time. They obviously aren't. They've taken precautions to make sure that that doesn't happen as uh, best they can with these because car manufacturers are not manufacturing grills, but it is something else to consider. And when you get rid of these batteries, I don't believe that they become less flammable in this way you have all sorts of problems that could come about from these things that the environmental protection agency doesn't give a damn about so they cause more pollution to make from the concept stage all the way to the disposal stage but right in the middle where their consumer is using it where you have it in the feel-good way in the absolute ultimate virtue signaling way You get to drive around and peacock to your friends about how green you are because you have a Tesla. Oh, I'm super green. I don't have to. I'm not buying any gasoline. I am not polluting at all. Where's the, unless you hook up a, uh, (laughs) unless you hook up your bicycle and some sort of generator, some sort of turbine to your bicycle that plugs directly into your electric vehicle. And at night you pedal that thing like you're, you know, a, doped up Lance Armstrong to power your vehicle. You are polluting, quote unquote. You are not helping the environment. You're virtue signaling. That's it. That's all. But that's enough because it's ultimately about control with Democrats. It really has very, very little to do with the environment. Sad but true. Look it up. So while we got the the EPA ready to screw everybody over and force everybody to buy a new car, because why? Because why not? We have a whole bunch of other problems, and none of this is really rating. It's kind of. I want to give you an. Every day there's abject lessons in media bias, but it's not oftentimes this stark. If you will. I saw this tweet from Newsweek this morning. Hakeem Jeffries under fire for defending anti-Semitic uncle. Defending anti-Semitic uncle. He's under fire. See, the, the framing of the story 
is wildly important. His uncle is a college professor up in New York. He is a nut, Leonard Jeffries. I recommend you look him up. He's got this theory of sun people and moon people. Black people are sun people and they are superior to everybody. It is ultimate critical race theory. It is ultimate in racism. But uh, and the framing of this is brilliant because they don't really want to go in all that much into what his uncle says or how it is that Hakeem, because years, this guy has been going since at least the 90s, probably the 80s, in his abject racism. It's one of the benefits of tenure is you can be a wild, racist piece of garbage and you're going to keep your job in academia. Well, okay, you can be a left-wing, anti-Semite, anti-white, racist piece of garbage. You can also be, you know, you're anti-other people who aren't, don't match your skin color too if you really get down to the the black racism in academia the white hebrew nationals they, they're not a big fan of asians or hispanics either but that's kind of glossed over because they don't they don't want to talk about that aspect of any of this because in general they're on board with the whitey is evil kind of stuff and if they draw attention to all the other things that come along with the whitey is evil the cheering progressive audience might go that's not really cool that that part is a little bit harsh but the framing of this story is that hakeem jeffries is under fire rather than hakeem jeffries is defending his racist piece of crap uncle thereby you know even if you look pretty closely at some of the stuff that Hakeem Jeffries talks about, you would discover a lot of racist, anti-Semitic crap there, too. Not as, not as direct as his uncle. You got to give props to Uncle Leonard for being right out there with it. Democrat politicians have learned, not all of them, there obviously are a lot of them out there who are just straight up spewing this stuff because they can, but for the most part, those people who have aspirations to be you know speaker of the house for example they will find a way to temper that the code words it's kind of funny because what do you always hear democrats say there's dog racist dog whistles democrats are using republicans are using dog whistles about this that and the other thing and like they're not we're just talking like normal human beings do but they're projecting they project they are the ones who in fact are using the code language and code words for people that they don't really like i don't believe for a second in a lot of these cases they actually think this way some cases i absolutely do but in a lot of cases it's more along the lines of they understand that if they appeal to people on a base level and a really stupid level it's much easier than making a nuanced argument and it's certainly better than they're trying to hurt you and i'm going to protect you from them is a much easier case to make to people who have come through the public education system that turns out nobody who can do basic math or read a coherent sentence than it is to say, here's why that person's policies are wrong and bad, and here's why mine are better. So that's why a lot of these Democrats, no matter what their gender or color, make these sort of ridiculous, they're against you, and I'm going to protect you from them arguments. But uh, this framing of this story should really be that Hakeem Jeffries has ties, familial ties, and a history of defending 
His racist, bigoted uncle. Instead, it's Republicans are pouncing. Newsweek, Democratic House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries is under fire following the resurfacing of decades-old college opinion article that saw him defend his anti-Semitic uncle. Jeffries took over the mantle of Democratic leadership after control of the House flipped to Republicans in last year's midterms elections. Told the Wall Street Journal in 2013 that he only had vague memories of the controversy surrounding his uncle Leonard Jeffries, a college professor in black studies, who in the early 1990s denounced, quote, rich Jews as puppet masters of the slave trade and claimed that Jews were orchestrating a conspiracy against black Americans. (laughs) Thanksgiving's got to be a blast over the Jeffries house. Quote, I have a vague recollection of it. Jeffries said during the Wall Street Journal interview, there was no internet during that era, and I can't even recall a daily newspaper in the Binghamton, New York area, Uh, but it wasn't covering the things that the New York Post and Daily News were at the time. End quote. However, an editorial penned by the future Democratic leader in 1992 when he was an undergraduate student at Binghamton University suggests he was fully aware of the controversy while it was happening. The article, surfaced by CNN on Wednesday, features Jeffrey's offering a defense of his uncle and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan. You can't say, well, you know, my uncle's just a little weird and he's not really any... If you're hanging out with Louis Farrakhan, you are just this... uh, Well, you are. You're the other side of a Klan rally. While largely focusing on denouncing black conservatives as, quote, house Negroes and lamenting their acceptance by the white media. Oh, wait a second. You mean Hakeem Jeffries is a racist? See, the story is about how uh, he defends it. Quote, Dr. Leonard Jeffries and Minister Louis Farrakhan have come under intense fire, Jeffries wrote at the time. Where do you think their interests lie? Dr. Jeffries has challenged the existing white supremacist's educational system and long-standing distortion of history. His reward has been a media lynching, complete with character assassination and inflammatory, erroneous accusations. Ah, the guy's a rabid anti-Semite, bigot, white, hating piece of garbage, and is sitting there going, yeah, well, that's a pretty strong defense of his, his uncle. It's, that's beyond the familial. Leonard Jeffries continued to make remarks that were denounced as anti-Semitic by groups like the Anti-Defamation League for, legal, for years after his nephew defended him. Isn't that lovely? Other remarks by Leonard Jeffries reportedly include references to Jews as dogs and skunks hoping to sink you, uh, stink you all up. Republicans, here's it, Republicans pounced. Republicans pounced. We just, as a Republican, I would like to sell you a nice little foldable chair uh, on which you can sit in the bushes as you wait for a Democrat, an unsuspecting, lovely Democrat who never did nothing to nobody, never did anything controversial, according to our media. You can wait in their bushes near their house, maybe on the corner, for when they walk past to check their mail or say hello to their neighbors, 
and you can pounce on them. It's It not only helps you with your knee and lower back support, but it also has a little bit of a spring so that when you do pounce, you can jump higher to pounce. <laughs> uh, Republicans pounced on Hakeem Jeffries following the publication of CNN's report accusing the Democrat of being anti-Semitic himself while lashing out at him for previously brushing aside his uncle's controversy and for denouncing black conservatives. Quote, Ilhan, o, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and now Hakeem Jeffries. Ha, uh, the Republican National Committee tweeted, Why are House Democrats so interested in giving a platform to anti-Semitic voices? Because they are. Because that's what they do. Go to a college campus, wear a yarmulke, wear a cup too. Maybe wear a vest on top of it. You might want to wear a helmet. Go and wave an Israeli flag and you will be confronted as though you are Hitler yourself, ironically. But if you wave a Palestinian flag, you might walk away with tenure. Quote, uh, for years, House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries has claimed he only had vague recollections of his uncle's anti-Semitism, but CNN has the receipts, and Jeffries is on record defending his uncle and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, tweeted the RNC research account. Republican Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida called for Jeffries to, quote, apologize for what his uncle for what he wrote in that article, and take part in a debate about black conservatives versus black liberals on Fox News. There is no debate. You can write that black conservatives are house Negroes. When you're in co- Now, if you have a tweet from 14 years old that you say, men are men and women are women, you will never be accepted in polite society, unless, of course, you've spent the last, I don't know, 20 years since sending that out, uh, flagellating yourself over the error of your ways you know that sort of thing leonard jeffries leonard jeffries just to put it, rush used to talk about uh, these sorts of things and the um the wikipedia page because there isn't a whole lot about mr jeffries out there that is in a digestible form there are long form articles and i recommend that you, you find them and you check them out but the uh, the guy is a nut. Rush used to talk about this. So this is just from the Wikipedia page because it's easily digestible. Jeffries claims that uh, Jewish businessmen financed the Atlantic slave trade and used the movie industry to hurt black people and that whites are, quote, ice people while Africans are, quote, sun people. Received national publicity in the early 1990s. <laughs> It just you gotta love this sort of bigotry. And it's it's perfectly acceptable. It's understandable. Jeffries is a proponent of melanin theory, which posits that greater skin pigmentation makes black people inherently superior to white people. He says melanin melanin allows black people to quote negotiate the vibrations of the universe and deal with the ultraviolet rays of the sun, end quote. Jeffries has stated, but not published, the idea that whites are ice people who are violent and cruel, while blacks are sun people who are compassionate and peaceful. The historian Maya Bay attributes the origin of this hypothesis to the writings of anthropologist Sheikh Anta Diop as well as Michael Bradley, author of The Iceman Inheritance. 
sounds like a hell of a guy. Is he still alive? He's, he's still alive. He's 86 years old. Oh, eventually he was let go from his uh, Black Studies chairmanship at the City University of New York. So eventually he did lose his job. Whether or not it had anything to do with this doesn't matter really all that much uh, because why would it? His, now his nephew, and I don't... I am not one to sit there and go, well, your family, you're guilty for the sins of your family. But since Democrats are, then uh, let's play that game. And since Akeem Jeffries did, in fact, write a passionate defense of his uncle and of Louis Farrakhan, which is weird because you could say, look, he's my uncle. He's not a racist. He's not, a, he's not an anti-Semitic. Look, I know the man. He's my uncle, for God's sakes. He's my brother's brother. I know that you can say he says some crazy things, but he's not a racist. Come on. That case you could make. It's not the case that Kim Jeffries made, but that is a case you could make. On the other hand, Louis Farrakhan, there's really no ambiguity. You can't say, look, my uncle is not an anti-Semite, and neither is Louis Farrakhan. You can't say that. You can't say, well, I know Louis Farrakhan. It doesn't matter if you know Louis Farrakhan. You've got 40-plus years of unambiguous those damn Jews talk from Louis Farrakhan. There's no sitting around going, you know, I think I think Louis is misunderstood when it comes to Jews. Sure, he calls them dirt people and termites and wishes that uh, they were all dead and whatever, but that could be interpreted any number of ways. See, that's a different situation. You can't. You can make the case about your uncle, but when you tie in Farrakhan, you're defending your uncle and Farrakhan, you're essentially equating the two. And that, to me, says you're cool with anti-Semitism. That, to me, means you're cool with anti-white racism. Now, you're a Democrat, and this is 1992. He's ahead of the curve. That's where the Democrat Party is now. Now, you know, back then, even black Democrats would have read that if Hakeem Jeffries weren't a college student and said, if you were a member of Congress, he wrote it and said, you know, this is too far. This is ridiculous. This is offensive. And he should apologize. And frankly, back then, they would say he should probably resign. We shouldn't have this guy harboring this sort of bigotry and racism should not be in Congress. But nowadays, it's prerequisite to be a white guy, Democrat, to go, you know what? He's got a point. Israel is an apartheid state, and those Jews are really nasty people. So it's terrible, horrible what they're doing out there, what with trying to stop people from blowing up themselves and killing innocent people in their markets. This is ridiculous, outrageous. And uh, white people in general, they do suck. Farrakhan makes some very solid points. Because you'd sit there and think this is insane, nobody would do this, but people do it all the damn time. This is what the Democratic Party has become. I, I love this story from CBS. Well, it's the story in general that Twitter is labeling things like NPR as government-funded news, and it was state-sponsored media. And they're like, "We're not state-sponsored media," <laughs> and so they said, "All right, well, you're government-funded media." And they still get mad about, how dare you? We're not such a thing. And uh, what a monster. And um, 
Elon Musk pointed out, rightly so, on NPR's homepage. It's a screen capture. He tweeted it out. Public radio and federal funding. This is NPR's own thing. Federal funding is essential to public radio's service to the American public, and its continuation is critical to both stations and program producers, including NPR. That's their own website. So you go, okay, you're government-funded media. We're not government-that. How dare you? Pointing that out is a threat to our, or a swipe at our independence. And they changed their Twitter bio to NPR is an independent news organization committed to informing the public about the world around us. <laughs> yeah. And making sure we're right there in line, marching goose step with the Democrats. So you'd think the uh, competition in media, because ratings matter, clicks matter. They're all in competition with each other. They're businesses, after all. You'd think that they'd kind of, other media outlets would kind of get a kick out of this. Maybe they'd be outraged a little bit, but they'd kind of go, well, more for us then, because NPR has quit Twitter over this. As long as that label of government-funded media is on our thing, we're going to quit. Okay, fine. Well... This is how CBS News, on the nightly news, somehow this made news with CBS News. Instead of them going, oh, good, let's let NPR, we'll take whatever audience we can get from them while they're having a hissy fit. Instead of that, Nora O'Donnell then decides that this is worthy of outrage. National Public Radio told its nearly 9 million followers on Twitter today that it's quitting the platform owned by Elon Musk. Twitter labeled NPR's main account as state-affiliated media, later changing it to government-funded media, which NPR says undermined its editorial independence. And it comes as Musk, in a rare interview, revealed he would sell Twitter to the right owner. It comes as Musk, in a rare interview. In a rare interview, how many interviews have you seen of Elon Musk in the in recent months? About a thousand. Honestly, he was on the Babylon Bees podcast. I like the Babylon Bees Twitter feed, but let's be honest, it, like if there are ten trillion outlets that go first, and they have. He sat down with the BBC the other day. He sits down with Joe Rogan. He says, "You name it, he'll give it." I feel like I could get an interview with Elon Musk. You'll sit if you anybody. With a phone, can get an interview with Elon Musk, get Nora O'Donnell in a rare interview, in a rare interview, and fighting with Elon Musk because they labeled them state-sponsored media. Uh, They labeled uh, Elon Musk a sponsor and enabler of terrorism and hate crimes. You know, there's certainly a hell of a lot of truth in the fact that NPR is state-funded media. It's on their own damn website. It really is. They put it there. Elon Musk owns a lot of things, but he does not own the uh, federal government. It does not own the uh, NPR's website. So I'm looking here. Is the thing still up there? I'm not seeing it. It's weird. It looks like NPR has removed... I don't know. I'll look more closely. It looks like NPR may have removed the federal funding is crucial part of their website. It's weird how that works, isn't it? It's so bizarre. Just a little bit of sunlight and the roaches scramble. So I want to play you some audio of 
Susan Rice. Susan Rice, hilarious. It's amazing to me. In my lifetime, you go from Al Sharpton is a fat dude in a jumpsuit with bad hair who is everybody knows he's just a racist piece of garbage to now he's the elder statesman of the civil rights movement what how did that happen how how devoid of intellectual decency is the left that they're going to elevate somebody like al sharpton well i guess when your uh your leader in the house of representatives is a full-throated embracer of anti-semitism I guess you just embrace anti-Semitism in all its forms. Why not? What the hell? And you've got when you lower, you eventually lower the standards to the point that you have no standards, and then you send somebody like Susan Rice up to talk to the National Action Network to kiss Al Sharpton's ring. Why? Because you got to. Because, 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 <laughs> and you're like, what? How is that? And she decides to talk about bigotry and racism and how horrible everything in this country is. And then just kind of cite something from one of the big banks. That's kind of funny. They, they, the left hates I don't know, Chase Bank or whatever, J.P. Morgan, whatever it is. They, they, big banks, they're horrible. They're awful. They're whatever. They're whatever. They're whatever. She's the director of domestic policy council for the president of the United States. And she uh, is up there talking to Al Sharpton. Now, there was a time not that long ago where somebody that closely tied to the president of the United States even being caught exchanging pleasantries with a bigot like Al Sharpton would have been a problem. But now you're sent by the administration to go up and, and kiss that ring. But racism, racism has reduced the economy by $16 trillion, according to Susan Rice. And if, notice at the end of this clip, when she talks about economic justice or whatever it is, the audience, this the smattering of applause, the pathetic, it's like a golf clap kind of applause. In the last 20 years, the U.S. had a GDP shortfall of $16 trillion due to discrimination against black Americans. If we closed our racial gaps, we could add another $5 trillion to GDP over just the next five years. And in case you're wondering, that's not my math. That's according to Citibank. We all benefit when every community has the chance to thrive. Not a lot of excitement out there for all communities thriving. Why? Because maybe that might involve the Jews. But I mean, you are talking to the National Action Network. But you love, okay, $16 trillion. That's, that's not me. That's Citibank. Oh, wait, isn't Citibank supposed to be, are they on the good list now? But, uh, of course, Citibank is woke. It's just this woke crap. It's just this made-up garbage. Let me ask you this, though. If you really want to study the economic impact of various policies, 
And you think, oh, it's just horrible, horrible racism is responsible for $16 trillion. What do you think, if you just had to put a number on it, hmm, what would you think the uh, impact on abortion would be on the GDP? Just I'm asking, I'm asking, I know you're not allowed to ask these questions, but I'm asking the question anyway. What do you suspect the impact on GDP would be of abortion? And if you just want to, since you're dealing with the National Action Network and you just want to keep it about race, let's just say on the black community, in the black community, how about that? Which one, how much do you think that would be? Millions upon millions of people who were never born because of the Democrats' fetish for abortion. Do you think that that might have an economic impact on there? I mean, are you allowed to? You're not really allowed to say that, but it does seem as though that is something that should be said, at least a question that should be asked. But instead, you get up there and you go, "No, no, no! It's just horrible. Just it's just racism's fault. It's just racism's fault. It's costing us seventeen trillion dollars. We're not going to explain how we came to that number. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're just going to declare it to be racism." Okay, well, then what about? abortion what about okay you don't want to do abortion i get it you don't want to do abortion you don't have to do abortion let's do the education system controlled by democrats in major predominantly black cities look at baltimore would you send your kid to the schools in baltimore no you wouldn't would you send your kids to the schools in philadelphia would you send your kids to the schools in chicago Los Angeles, New York, you name it, the public school system. Would you send your kids to any of them? The answer is overwhelmingly no. Good God, no. If I had any other option, I would exercise that option as quickly as humanly possible. What do you think the economic impact of the schools in Baltimore, 22 of them producing literally not one single human being who is proficient in their grade level for math? What do you think the long-term impacts on the GDP are? Do you think they're good? Are they good or are they not good? Just start with that one. Good or not good. Now, extrapolate that over the entire country, over generations. And what do you think the impact is? Good or not good? I think I think we can all agree that that's not good. Susan Rice doesn't care about that. Susan Rice isn't going to speak about that. The National Action Network isn't going to speak about that. Why? Because probably after Susan Rice came Randy Weingarten or somebody, somebody like that, some union goon who defends the failed teachers at the expense of good teachers. And they're all sitting there going, hey, man, we don't, uh, we don't know. Can't say. What the problem is, but don't dare look at blaming teachers. Don't dare look at the education. Don't do this. Don't do that. And Democrats don't do it. They put blinders on. And rather than deal with reality, they deal with fakeness. They make it up as they go. This is the real boogeyman out here. This nebulous thing that you can't prove, but you also can't disprove, which is just more important, honestly. But then you say, well... This is who the people elect. It's a self-inflicted wound, really. How much are we supposed to care about those? In the uh, remaining time we have left, I want to play you just a couple of clips here. 
the Young Turks, Anna Kasparian, they're as left as they get. They're the progressive news outlet, you see. They propped up, along with the rest of the left-wing media, they propped up somebody called Rebecca Jones. You probably remember the name vaguely. Rebecca Jones was the, the data scientist. She was really not a data scientist. Who, down in Florida during COVID, she was fired from her job because she claimed, my goodness, they were cooking the books and the numbers, Ron DeSantis, to try and cover how many people were dying from COVID, all to benefit Ron DeSantis. Well, it turns out she was a complete fraud. She was every, pretty much everything about her was BS. And she has since been raising a ton of money off of sucker leftists going, oh, geez, she was a victim. She was the victim. Well, Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks finally had enough. And she issued an apology to her audience, oddly enough. Swear to God. It's, it's telling. I want to correct all of those errors that we had previously reported. And I want to be clear that out of everyone who works on the main show, the only person who should be held responsible for that is me. I'm the executive producer of the show, and I screwed up royally. And part of the reason why I screwed up is because I had all these biases, of course, against Ron DeSantis. And I don't, I don't really feel bad about that because I think Ron DeSantis has done some pretty terrible things in the state of Florida. But it becomes a problem when that bias blinds you to what the facts of various stories happen to be. And I should have done my due diligence. I failed to do so. And by failing to do so, I feel like I've misled the audience into thinking that Rebecca Jones is some sort of hero. Okay, so far so good, right? That's actually pretty good to hear somebody screws up that bad. But she goes on from there. Now, to be fair to myself and to be fair to other independent media sources, if you're not doing your own original reporting, you're relying on the mainstream media narrative a lot of the time. And if they're not doing their due diligence, if they're allowing their personal biases to stand in the way of actual factual reporting, well, that's unfortunately going to trickle into the way independent news sources cover these types of stories as well. Fact of the matter is, I want to make sure that I correct my errors, I get you guys accurate information, and I avoid helping someone who might be a grifter from fundraising off of our own audience members. She got the grifter part right, but uh, oh, we just admitted that quote-unquote independent media does nothing but parrot what the mainstream liberal media does. That's kind of the problem. If we could do our own original report, isn't that your job? You claim to be doing that. Lastly, I really want to play this quickly for you from Australia because I don't understand what the hell's going on in this clip. Listen to the end of this setup for a news story. A driver who killed her own daughter and another young woman on the mid-north coast in 2019 has today been sent to jail. Linda Britton claimed she was trying to break up a fight when she drove into the pair. Her other victim's family saying today's sentence is too light. And a warning to our Indigenous viewers, this story contains images of people who have died. Now, it wasn't pictures of dead people. It was images of people who had died. Is there something about Indigenous culture <laughs> I don't know about? Well, you know, once somebody's done, you never look at their image ever again, whatever. I, I heard that. I was like, what in the hell is that all about? 
It's probably Whitey projecting, but, you know, well, back in the 2000, 2000 years ago, it was different. It's just really bizarre to me. Screwed up. What the hell was that about? <laughs> I really don't get it. Like, the, the noble Native American believes that if you take their picture, you will steal their soul. Well, maybe they did back when the camera first came into existence, but they don't anymore. But maybe in Australia, like, the white people are like, the white liberals, of course, are all going, hey, man, uh, the indigenous people, they can't handle it. They don't, they don't understand that an image of a dead person isn't actually the dead person and they haven't come back from the grave. So don't, we got to give trigger warnings on this. It's just bizarre. Or they're super sensitive about anybody who's died, that, you know, even if they didn't know him because no way they knew him, they immediately freak out feel horrible when they see somebody who's passed on in photograph just so weird anyway what's not weird is that the week in effing review will be up at midnight tonight that's not weird that's awesome go to patreon.com slash derek hunter podcast or derek hunter.locals.com if you please see vu play if you do not uh, if you if you if you will please support the program and uh, be back here on monday have a great weekend